And then one day I got in my dream to say, why are you sad? Why are you sad? So I wake up to tell that my mother. He said, yeah, I've been telling you every time. You have to be happy. You have to be confident in your life. And I keep that in my mind. So one day I see the old festival dance in the village. And I was so happy that day to forget all my pain, all my disability. So that's why I'm telling you the community is so important to be together and to share what you know and to learn from them too. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, to information, and to each other. I'm Amivora. Today, the story of Siddiqui Konde, a musician and a dancer from Guinea who now lives in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. After losing the use of his legs to polio as a kid, he knows firsthand what isolation feels like. He now dedicates his time to helping people, and nothing can hold him back. After a year of loss and loneliness in New York City, I feel like we could all learn a lot from Siddiqui. Siddiqui was 14 years old when he lost the use of his legs to polio. In his home country of Guinea in West Africa, a physical disability like that is thought to bring shame and bad luck to a community. And so after his paralysis, he was taken out of school. He was sent to live in his grandfather's village deep in the forest. But several years later, the time came for a coming-of-age ceremony. It's a ceremony called Soli, and it's an event where young men dance traditional steps into manhood. Siddiqui knew that if he didn't participate, if he didn't dance, he would remain cut off from his community. And so with an incredible amount of hard work and persistence, he taught himself to dance. On his hands, he participated in the ceremony and ultimately he did reconnect with his community. forward to age 59, and he's become an international sensation, and he lives in a fifth-floor walk-up in the East Village. The New York Times recently did a story about Siddiqui, and they wrote, a lot of Ghanaian people live in this area, in the East Village. And in that neighborhood, Siddiqui might as well be the mayor. He knows everyone. But his day-to-day changed during the pandemic. With performing and teaching going virtual, he hasn't had as many opportunities to dance. The Center for Traditional Music and Dance's Beat of the Burroughs Initiative was the exception. And Epicenter NYC reporter Danielle Himes spoke with him about participating in the event. Hello. Hi, Siddiqui. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Um, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about why you're participating in Beat of the Burroughs. So I know how important also the community to share whatever you are. So from there, my happiness come back. And I, I started to so that, I started sharing 
by my by my handicap and, and my happiness and, and what I can do of life. During the event, Siddiqui shared the story of his ancestral masks. He also gave words of wisdom on how to deal with hardship and thrive in the face of adversity, something we could all use a little more of right now. He told us that by sharing what he's overcome, he hopes other people can start to find happiness in difficult situations too. Andrew Caldwell, the project director and staff ethnomusicologist at the Center for Traditional Music and Dance, said that Beat of the Burrows aims to help the public understand the incredible stories that artists like Siddiqui have. Now their programs air once a week on Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Himes also asked Siddiqui about how he got to this point in his career and about that moment that he made the decision to learn to dance. I think I saw that the call to sing and dance came to yeah. you in a dream. Yeah, what was that like? That, that was like at the time I was so much confused what I can do in my life. My life was so much broken and my mind was so much uh, off. And then one day I got in my dream to say, why are you sad? Why are you sad? So I wake up to tell that my mother, he said, yeah, I've been telling you every time, you have to be happy. You have to be confident in your life. And I keep that in my mind. So one day I see the old festival dance in the village. And I was so happy that day to forget all my pain, all my disability. So that's why I'm telling you the community is so important to be together and to share what you know and to learn from them too. Siddiqui says that it was his music that brought him to America. And here he continues to reach people with a message of hope and inclusion. Lately, he's been teaching music to adults and to kids with cerebral palsy or autism. And and what have you been up to lately? Do you have any new projects? I think last time we spoke, you were doing something for people with disabilities. Yeah, he teaches for Nassau County cerebral palsy for adults with cerebral palsy on Zoom. Uh, is that what he was just doing earlier today? Yeah, he has eight classes a week. They're only a half an hour, but they're a lot of work. <laughs> he sings, plays drums, and teaches them songs. So they, the kids, the, well, they're adults, they sing back. A lot of them are nonverbal, but they can sing. It's very interesting. Singing's very different. And also, he's teaching in person once a week for little kids with autism. He goes out to Queens. Oh, that's so great. Is that through a school or a special program? It's a school that's there, but it's funded by the same people that funded the cerebral palsy. They've been our angels. The Teresa Foundation. Haim spoke to Siddiqui's wife, Deborah, too. She laughed after being asked about living in a fifth-floor walk-up with him. And she also talked about how they met while she was working in Africa. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere that you live on the fifth floor of a walk-up building. <laughs> of course. I live in the East Village in Manhattan. Yeah, my, my building is a five-step walk-up. You don't let anything deter you. You don't have to look for somewhere with an elevator because you know that you can do it you yourself. Know, yeah, life is depends on what you have. So you must deal with it. You know. And financially, 
this apartment is very reasonable for New York City. Yeah. As long as we can hold out, because we're also supporting the family in Guinea. Right. And, you know, I'm a painter. He's a musician. I mean, please. And how did you two meet? Oh, I'm a wildlife artist. And I've worked extensively in Africa. But what I also, my big passion was African dance. So I was obsessed with it. I probably would have gotten much further as an artist if I wasn't, you know, completely obsessed with dance. Yeah. Dancing seven days a week. But a lot of the Africans that came here didn't have, you know, didn't have health insurance, of course, and many Mm -hmm. other things. And so I got a a really nice doctor at doctor's hospital to see them for free. I just give them some paintings and they do that. And someone told me about a guy in a wheelchair that had come and was having really big problems. And so what I did was we kept missing each other. And then finally... I, I saw an African being pushed by another African in the wheelchair. And so I just yelled out his name. <laughs> and he came up to me and, you know, I tried to, like, sign language. I'm going to help you get to the doctor. And so we started this journey of getting him to doctors, the doctor to see what his joints were and what was going on. And the more I got to know him, the more he completely charmed me. And there wasn't really any other avenue to go. <laughs> because I had always lived alone, you know. I mean, I just, you know, was a confirmed bachelorette. But um, that kind of ended, you know. And we got married. Kind of shocked my family. Siddiqui traveled back to Guinea during the winter. He and Deborah normally go back every year. But this year, things were different. Siddiqui's brother is one of the lead doctors responding to the coronavirus pandemic there. It's a challenge for Siddiqui to be so far away, now more than ever. I know you had talked about going to Guinea. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go to December. Now you went to Guinea? Uh, yeah, I, went, I, just, I just come from Guinea in March, March 11th. Oh, you were there from December to March? Yeah. Uh, how was your visit? It was great. It's wonderful. Uh, yeah, I got a good time with my friends, uh, my family, my kids. Bye. You also care about the IT. Uh-huh. When I pass the message to tell them what the corona can do, how do you how do you how do you do to make it safe for yourself? So, were you trying to tell them how to be safe? Mm-hmm. Yes. How what? they can be. Safe. And uh, how they take a social distance, have the have the max, uh, whatever you go. But thank God they listen. Are they giving any vaccines there yet? Yeah, they got the vaccine. The government buys some vaccine. I bring it. Yeah, I heard that before. I think last time we spoke, you mentioned that your brother is one of the lead doctors. Is that like? Does he work for the government, or is he the lead doctor in a hospital? No, he worked for the government. He's a military. Yeah, he's a new. He's a, he's a military doctor. Yeah, I just talked to him this morning. How is he? He's doing good. So every, everything's good now. Everything's excellent. They got a vaccine organizer or every town, every state to vaccinate the people. I said, that's really good. Like Siddiqui mentioned, they're worried about how Guinea has been doing throughout the pandemic. To help, he made a song that tells people about the importance of social distancing and wearing masks. This isn't the first time Siddiqui has helped people in his home country deal with a deadly disease. 
you went to you went to different communities. Put them together, do a little show for them, and then talk to how the COVID is, and how we can survive. Yeah, how to how to share together if you're not you're not really close, you know. Yeah, yeah there was a lot of denial about COVID. In the past, you you both have done some work there with Ebola, right? Spreading awareness. Yeah. It's the same problem. Same problem. And yeah, people don't trust the government. They say, okay, they have sickness in town. And they want to vaccinate the killers. You know, everybody has his mind. You must talk to them strongly. Say, hey, look, you know, this has happened from far, far away from here. And everybody will have it. You know. Have you gotten your vaccine in New York? Yes, I got all my, my two vaccines in New York City. You too, Deborah? Yeah. yeah, me too. We both got vaccinated. That's great. Well, as always, thank you guys both so much for chatting. Despite everything, Siddiqui says that happiness is about not being defeated. He says that you can always figure it out in any situation, even with what's happening now. Next up, every week we're excited to introduce you to one of our neighbors, someone just like you. Today, I'm excited to introduce Mitra Kalida. Mitra is a journalist, a media executive, a prolific commentator, and an author. She's also the co-founder and CEO of URL Media, a network of black and brown community news outlets. And she's the co-founder and publisher of Epicenter NYC. So if you're doing the math here, that last title makes Mitra my boss. She sits on the board of the Philadelphia Inquirer and has worked at CNN, Quartz, Atlantic Media, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Newsday, The Associated Press, and The LA Times. Mitra has been described as wonderfully blunt. She's a change agent and an advocate for diversity and better management of our newsrooms. For Mitra, Jackson Heights has been home on and off for the last 21 years. Here's a little bit of her New York story. So I was born in Brooklyn. My parents, uh, my father first came to Jackson Heights in 1971. They moved around to a few places. And by the time I was born in 1976, my parents were living in Sunset Park. They emigrated from India to a city. They lived in a small apartment in Jackson Heights with my dad, my dad, my mom, My brother was here at the time. She had brought him over and then um, they had another roommate. And so that was very awkward. Um, And then they moved to Brooklyn on their own. And so it was just one of these, like it was always supposed to be temporary, this type of existence. And when they moved to Brooklyn, my mom got a job at Burger King and they saved up money from her job at Burger King and put a down payment on a house in Long Island They bought the house in the suburbs. And that, of course, is the way the immigrant dream is supposed to work. I think for a lot of immigrants, it was just trying to get out and and buying a house in the suburbs was a sign of making it. So for me to come back here, especially in the year 2000, when I moved to the neighborhood, while there were signs of gentrification, like I kind of feel like Jackson Heights has always had signs of gentrification. But I always encounter like multiple times a week, someone who's just gotten here. And 
you know, I, I just, I love living in a place where there's always new beginnings happening around you. It never feels boring, but I don't think that my parents, when they bought that first house envisioned that I would not just come back here, but that I would almost become so entrenched. Like I, it's, I'm so entrenched here, you know, like, I feel like I don't know where, the fluidity of this neighborhood and my identity really begin and end. Like we just feel very intertwined. I moved to New York City for the second time in the fall of 1999. I was attending Columbia Graduate School of Journalism and I lived on the Upper West Side right across from Tom's restaurant, which was made famous in Seinfeld. And my beat, uh, you get a beat when you're in grad school for journalism, like a neighborhood that you have to cover. I chose Jackson Heights as my beat for two reasons. One, I had grown up coming here. And two, because my father's not first stop, not second stop, maybe third or fourth stop was an apartment in Jackson Heights right near Elmhurst Hospital. And I knew that, I kind of knew that. And I thought, well, let me try to get to know this neighborhood better. So that's how I entered Jackson Heights. And then in the fall of 2000, after I had graduated Columbia, I got a job at Newsday and I moved into my first ever apartment by myself, which is a studio apartment across from Travers Park, which is one of the few parks in Jackson Heights. And it was $715 a month. Now I feel like the whole world is being reinvented and the whole world meets in New York City. So there's a part of me that is kind of terrified of what's to come. And I, I mean that partly in like a post-pandemic world, like are we ready to go back to work or to the way things were? And of course the answer is no, we shouldn't go back to the way things were. We should demand so much better. We are the definers of arts and culture and business and I hope racial equity, but we're also kind of the greatest offenders of segregation and who gets their artwork in a museum and the inequities of everything, healthcare and wages and, 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 and so much more. So I guess I look to this as a moment where we get to decide. And my hope is that we don't look away I feel like everything's changing. What young people are demanding from an employer like me is changing, rightfully. What artists want from gallery owners and museum curators is changing, rightfully. Art is changing. Neighborhoods are changing. I mean, we, you know, here in Jackson Heights, there was a protest for half a block of space off of Travers Park about two years ago. And there was a fight with one of the local car dealers to get that space opened, the neighborhood did not prevail. And like fast forward to two years later, you know, the mayor just approved open streets of 30 blocks, like 30 whole blocks right outside my house are now open from 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. at night. And that's kind of a revolution, right? And so, you know, if we fight together, if we're looking out for each other, there's a part of me that says, look, you have evidence of that actually working over the last year? Like we got to be a part of something amazing. Now it's upon us to spread that. I think being a New Yorker is 
defined by being global, being snobby, but not picky about art and good food and seeing beauty in all sorts of places that other people might not see beauty. So I guess I I see it as this place where so much of being small is possible, but God together, like look at what amazingness that creates. So my favorite New York City sound is the curtain call on Broadway. And there's a few reasons for this. The first is we see a lot of shows. We also are always running late. The the lateness is a thing with us. And so every time I walk into a theater and hear that sound, I just breathe a sigh of relief. Like, oh my gosh, I made it. I made it in time. And then during intermission, especially when you're seeing something good and you hear that sound, it's like, I get to see how this ends. And I just, I love that sound because it's kind of this anticipation and also the satisfaction that there will soon be a conclusion. Before we go, I'd like to share a short highlight of one of our most recent live streams. Mitra, who you just met, moderated a panel about the global vaccine rollout. She spoke recently with journalists from three different countries, Rohan Venkat in India, Andre Fran in Brazil, and Valerie Vazquez de Velasco in Peru. Thank you so much for joining another live stream from Epicenter NYC. We have been helping New Yorkers uh, secure appointments for vaccines since uh, January, um, and we've kind of shifted from booking into much more outreach. But in recent weeks, it's become impossible for us to separate the rest of the world from our efforts here in New York City. We are a local operation, but our definition of community is quite expansive. And they say, we're going to throw away 10 doses unless you get them in here before five o'clock. And then we're scrambling to try to, now we've actually gone back into our database to contact people who have been vaccinated and asking them if they have any friends or family that we can help them get vaccinated because we're kind of twiddling our thumbs as, uh, you know, expert bookers, but there's still all of these people who are not vaccinated around the world. So this is kind of the issue. Honestly, things are still very dire. Um, We've had six days in a row with more than 300,000 cases and over 2,500 deaths per day. I think what may be particularly relevant is that uh, Delhi, for example, has had three waves before this. And uh, there was the general sense that we had hit a certain level of immunity within the city, even without vaccines, that we had weathered the storm. Um, things had gotten down to fewer than a, you know, a thousand cases a week in January, February, and then we were just hit by this complete wallop of cases in late March, early April, um, where today you have people running around. Hospitals are completely overburdened. Um, the government systems have fallen apart. People are dying not because of the virus, but because of the lack of healthcare facilities, the lack of supplies. Uh, We are now over 14 million deaths and we are approaching 400,000, 14 million cases and 400,000 deaths in Brazil. 
and it's in great part due to the lack of efficiency in our government. Our president for a long time was against the vaccination. He almost today still is gathering public. He refuses to wear a mask. And this goes on and passes through to, to society as a whole. Uh, we refused more than 11 offers from vaccine uh, producers from different parts of the world. And just like recently, he started a, a little bit taking the right measures, but it's, it's too late. Um, but it's not the same story in our country, no? Just two weeks ago or three weeks ago, we, we began vaccinating to the, the oldest to the oldest people. And well, in this case, my aunt, she passed away two weeks with this COVID because somebody entered her home just for help her, for helping her. So she she didn't have the, the possibility now, no? And that happened in a group of people that have more possibilities than the rest of the, of the country. I'm maybe the, 5% of people that have uh, possi the possibility to get uh, into a hospital if I got an emergency or something. We have this, this healthcare system that was very, that was bad in every, in every way, but now it's like, it's completely collapsed. And please stay safe, everybody. Thank you so much. This live stream was done in partnership with Scrollstack. You can find the full conversation titled Vaccine Apartheid on our YouTube page. You can also find a direct link in our show notes. Join us for our next live stream. It's on Tuesday, May 18th. We'll be talking with pediatricians about kids and the COVID vaccine. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to tune in again next week. Epicenter NYC is a newsletter about creating community in the city we all love. If you or someone you know has a story to tell, we'd love to hear it. You can reach us at hello at epicenter-nyc.com. We also encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our sister newsletter, The Unmuted. It's written by education journalists, public school parents, and students who give you the ever-changing scoop on what's going on in schools. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our show notes. Toodles!